brother Hassan Munir. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, man. Pleasure to have you. Oh, you're welcome. I have been seeing a lot of great things from the Asai podcast, and uh, I'm glad I got the opportunity to come on. I'm grateful to you and everyone else involved for bringing me on uh, for, for a good conversation. I think it's a good topic we're about to talk about. Inshallah, inshallah. For anyone who doesn't know, Brother Hassan Munir is currently pursuing a master's in Mediterranean Middle East history. He's the founder of iHistory, a public history project, and was recognized as an emerging historian at the 2017 Heritage Toronto Awards. Brother Hassan Munir, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Alhamdulillah. Today we're going to be discussing a fascinating figure, one that we all love and have learned about as, as a legend, as a, as a tale uh, for some in, in different capacities, and that is Sahidin Ayubi. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things you and I were discussing that's that's incredible about him is, is how does one, how did he even start like that? Or how did he become the person he became? Was he always like this? Or how was he in his youth? Salafuddin Ayyubi is born into a Kurdish military family, right, in the mid-1100s in the city of Tikrit, which is now in Iraq. Um, and he's a Kurdish background. Uh, his uh, family, especially his father and his uncle, are both uh, in the employ of these local Turkish dynasties that have established power pretty much over cities and the surrounding countryside. So what that means is, let's say, city-states or these small little kingdoms. And obviously, when you're in such a divided environment, first of all, that's how the Crusades succeeded in the first place, because the Muslims were so divided. There was no consolidation of power. There was no consolidation of resources. The other thing that you need is you always are on the hunt for an army to defend, right? Because you're constantly on edge, even with your fellow Muslim neighbors. There's not that much unity at this time. And so that is a huge opportunity for people like Salahuddin's father, Najmuddin, that's his name, and Salahuddin's uncle, who's famously known as Shirku. Now, this family is uh, close to the birth of Salahuddin. They're expelled from Iraq, to make the long story short, and they end up in Syria, which is, of course, nearby, and they end up in the employ of a person called Nuruddin Zangi. Um, so we'll talk about Nuruddin Zangi. He's a very important figure in Islamic history and in the story of Salahuddin as well. But before we get to that, just a few other details. What can we piece together about the youth of Salahuddin, especially his youngest years? Uh, when the first crusade succeeded in the year 1099, you have these Europeans come in and they do the unthinkable. It's unthinkable for Muslims ever since the time of the Hunafah al-Rashidin, we've had this uh, dominance over the uh, Holy Land, including the city of Jerusalem, the first Qibla of the Muslims, the third holiest masjid for the Muslims. It's a very significant place. And suddenly you lose it to a ragtag army just like not even professional soldiers, but like just random guys who were kind of, you know, fired up because of the speeches of the Pope and other things like that. How did they make it all the way from Europe? And we were so divided and we were so kind of lost in our success and our feeling that, you know, our rule is unshakable. We were fighting each other. We were like, it's not a big deal, whatever. Someone else will deal with them. Not that they're going to make it to Jerusalem. One thing after another, suddenly they make it to Jerusalem and they massacre people or they just take over the city and they're going to rule it for the next 87 years, right? And this was a wake-up call. 
Um, and so why does he call it the triumph of the Sunni revival? I'm just trying to set the context here. This is all about Salahuddin. Um, but why does Abdul Rahman call it the triumph of the Sunni revival? Because at that time, you had the Abbasid Khalifa in Baghdad still present, but he was only ruling nominally. And the people who were really in power were first a Shia dynasty called the Buyids, um, who were replaced by the Sanjuks, who were Sunni. Uh, so, so that sort of Shia dynasty had been replaced by a, a Sunni military power that was supporting the Abbasid Khalifa. But in Egypt, which has historically always been the sort of powerhouse of the Middle East, like Egypt is extremely significant, always been the case, you still had the Fatimid dynasty, the Ismaili Shia dynasty that was in power there. Um, and so it was recognized by... Uh, many scholars and intellectuals first that to recover from this shock of losing the city of Jerusalem, there's something deeply uh, wrong with the way Muslims conceive of their, their religion as well as of their commitment to community. Like there's no unity here, right? It was a lack of unity that allowed this to happen in the first place. And we never thought it would happen. And we need to now establish political unity. But before we do that, we need to um, raise a generation that has that vision, right? And the people who are doing that, and they're going to do this with the educational revolution within Sunni Islam, are people like Nizam al-Munk, who was a vizier, the prime minister or whatever of uh, the Sajjub dynasty. Uh, and he sets up what are known as the Nizamiya, like the Madaris, the Madrasa system. He establishes that, and one of the first people he employs as the principal of his Madrasa in Baghdad is uh, Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazani, right? So Imam al-Ghazani, the, the, the famous, right? So what they do is they create a standardized curriculum of um, Sunni teaching, and also a conceptualization that we take for granted today that, you know, all these madahim and stuff, like we need to like stop fighting among ourselves. And it's very ambitious and visionary if you think about it, right? They're not saying, yo, let's all pick up our swords. And, you know, sometimes in the Muslim community, we do see like the, the, the brush for a solution, like immediately we need to resolve this and that. But just just the vision of saying, okay, this we are like very deeply in trouble and you know, this is maybe going to take a generation or two generations or more, but we know we have it very clear where we have to start. It has to start with the education because that's how you get ideas into the drinking water as the expression goes. And then everyone's going to drink from it. People will benefit at different levels, but everyone will benefit from it, right? And that's how you raise a generation with certain ideas and certain conceptualizations. So anyways, all this is going on. And one of the people who is very on board with this project is Nuruddin, who is established in the city of Damascus, which is extremely crucial historically, before Islam, during Islamic history, even today. Um, and he is fully on board with this vision, right? So then when the family of Salahuddin ends up in his employ specifically as you know military men in the city of Damascus, it's the perfect opportunity for Salahuddin. So Salahuddin is brought to Damascus. He's 14 years old, right? Um, and he is uh, put under the mentorship, basically, of Nuruddin Zandi. And 
Nuruddin is obviously a ruler, but he's a very enlightened ruler, as we would say, right? If you have the emergence of like, you know, madrasa, people building madrasas and uh, other public works like gardens and, and just, you know, beautifying the place and trying to raise the standard of living and all these things. And this is the work that Salahuddin is seeing happen around him as he's growing up in the city, like 14 years old. So he's getting used to a certain kind of life. And he's also, you know, um, one of the things um, that he's going to see is that he had an older brother who was 15 years older than him, uh, whose name was Shahanshah. Shah. Uh, and he was actually killed fighting the Crusaders in like a local skirmish, right? We don't know if this happened after he was 14 or like, we don't know the exact date. What we do know is that his, his older brother, 15 years older, was killed. And I think, you know, you think about what that does to you, like when you're a young person. It, you know, when you know that your sibling has sacrificed his life, like your older brother just gave up his life for a particular cause, how much more important does that cause become to you? And then you want to follow in that footstep. Maybe even like, you know, you're a child, you want revenge or like you're, you're, you're thinking like, I want justice or whatever it might be, right? So how much of that, of a focus and a pursuit does that give you? So we have details like that. Uh, he, he, he was known to kind of enjoy like certain youthful pursuits. One of the interesting things that this also comes later, I'm not saying he did this while he was like, you know, kid or something like that, but there, there are records of him, um, kind of drinking alcohol and things like that. And, and, and maybe like enjoying the party scene a little bit, like in his teenage years. And again, it was, it's almost, you know, certain things that are part of like the military lifestyle. You are, you're a very young man and you're going through all the experiences of like, uh, let's say puberty and coming of age and all those things where your natural human experiences and then on top of that you're like always at war and conflict and you don't know you see people pass away around you like other military men young age you imagine the thoughts right am i going to get to live life like am i, am I ever going to have like a peaceful life or whatever like let me just enjoy a little bit you can i think get all relate like anybody who's you know we live very most of us probably who are speaking and listening and everything are living very privileged lives from the Right. So with all that in mind, like, you know, there, it's not that it's a, it's a habit that he persisted in and we would assume he made Dubai and obviously later on, like, uh, he, he, he banned alcohol in Egypt. So he's brought in his uncle Shivku was, he built the second madrasa in the world that we know of history that taught the fit of two different madahib at the same time. Right. So again, like we said, or there was a division. Now there's a reconceptualization that's happening over two or three generations about, hey, you don't need a separate, like, you know, Shafi and Hanafi Madrasa. We could actually teach both at the same because essentially they're the same teachings. Right. So what kind of, what's that communicating to the, you know, the, to, to the young Salahuddin? Emphasis on things are being achieved now. Damascus, which was stagnant for a long time, is suddenly becoming a more and more powerful city. And one seems to be the cause all of this investment that, that the rulers are doing for the betterment of the life of their own people, not just on protecting their own kingdom or their own throne or anything like that. So Nuruddin Zabdi is now his, his mentor. You know, so I would be really seems to have understood the importance of unity and really anybody did at the time, you know, uh, the knights uh, of spinners, uh, you know, like these kind of, I don't even know how to describe them with these groups that are associated with the crusades or like now they're associated with like, I don't know, fraternities or, or, or odd things like that. But anyways, like one of these like secret groups of knights with like an order and all that thing. Um, 
one of them, like one of their leaders is on the record saying that, uh, he said that if Damascus and Cairo were under the same ruler, he said not, not even that the crusaders would completely lose control over Jerusalem or anything like that. He said Christians would be wiped out of the entire region. He's like, the only thing that's keeping us alive, what they refer to as the kingdom of Jerusalem, the crusader kingdom, like the only reason we exist is because there's two different Muslim rulers in these two different cities. We have two, two, two cities ruled by the same individual, but we're finished. And literally, that's exactly what happened. Like he, it's like he knew, and everybody knew that this is what is needed, right? But what's the problem? You've got all these real tiny dynasties in, uh, in Syria and in Egypt, you've got the Fatimid, the Shia dynasty, and like nobody's getting along. Right. And this was how many years after the Prophet? Uh, this is approximately 450, uh, 500 ish years after the Prophet. The, the, the thing to keep in mind about him, apart from his investment in education and all those things, the fact that he was an enlightened ruler, um, he was uh, somebody, he was probably the first of these local Muslim rulers to really put, put in like an effort that we need to get rid of the Crusaders. Because what happened was that, you know, the, obviously there was a shock that, like, you know, Muslims are used to fighting each other at this point in that region, but you've never had, like, some Christian ragtag army, like we said, right? So this is something very unique. And that Mimba, right, actually, we'll come back to it later. An incredible story of the Mimba. Um, but Salahuddin is basically seeing that, right? Oh, because you are giving me too many teasers here. Yeah. So just... <laughs> Walk me through the story right quick, because I think the minbar is, an, is a crucial part. So he, he built this minbar yeah. and had the vision to one day put it in Jerusalem. And I think he had another minbar as well built. So I'm, I'm aware of one. Okay. And, and, and it's that one. So here's a story of a minbar that if we just you know, focus on that for a moment. He has the minbar built. Um, he's going to pass away before most of the upsets liberated, before, the, the, before it's even close. So the guy with the bishop. And he passed on that vision to Salahuddin. He himself doesn't get to see the realization of it. But Salahuddin remembers that Salahuddin is going to go on his whole roller coaster journey in his life before he gets to the liberation of Jerusalem. But didn't he always rave as he was mentoring Salahuddin about Jerusalem and wanting to free it? He did. He had an obsession with the idea. Of Absolutely. It. Right. And so that's what, to a young person, that's what conveying the importance. Like, his obsession wasn't that, oh, like, what's the Muslim guy in, you know, Aleppo doing and what's going on in Iraq and is my power? Like, he wasn't insecure. Like, Dhuladeen was not an insecure person. And that lack of insecurity is going to pass on to Salahuddin, where he really didn't care, right? So, Salahuddin, on the date that he liberates Jerusalem, or Jerusalem is liberated, and he has that mimbuk brought from uh, Damascus, where he still remembers it. Right? And this is like 20 plus years. Like somebody, you imagine you like, you know, some, you saw someone's vision like 20 plus years ago. And, and, and not only like, and people know it's the Mimbar of Nuruddin. Like that would be the moment where Salahuddin would be like, I'm going to have my own Mimbar built and that installed because I'm the one who got ready in Jerusalem. So why should it be like Nuruddin? You, know, you can come up with excuses if you were like a selfish or egotistical person. Right? But he's like, no, no, Nuruddin Mimbar should be brought, installed in Western Aqsa. The first Jua within Masjid al-Aqsa, right, in 87 years. In my 87 years, there's no Jua in the third holiest site, the third holiest masjid in Islam. And the first Jua is happening, and it's happening on the member of Nehru Deen 
that he had built 20 years earlier, and he's already long gone to his grave, right? Imagine like the concept of the Pajaria, and then the Baraka, like how long are they going to last? It's going to last until the 1960s. That Nippur was used, right? Until the 1960s, we're talking like 800 years that Nippur was used. Yeah, can you try to pull up a photo of this Nippur in the 1960s? Right? Yeah, so, so, so we have that. And then what, so the Nippur is destroyed in a Zionist arson attack, right? So as a Zionist actually set fire to rest of the Aqsa, I forget exactly what year it was. There's a famous like incident and the Nippur is burned. And obviously it's probably not in amazing shape after 800 years of use anyways, right? So it was burnt and everything in it. So it was replaced by another one. And in recent years, in just the past few years, the Jordanian government actually had a replica or as close, you know, they had pictures and stuff because 1960, there was like photos. And so they had it reconstructed, like a replica of it. And now that's the one that's been reinstalled in most of the Aqsa. So even though it's not the original, it's still a replica of the one Nuna Deen Zagdi had built, right? The one that, if you go to much of the website now, if you see the member, you're, you're looking at the design that he approved of, that he had built like 800 plus years ago. So he's, he's still with Nuna Deen. Nuna Deen actually did, you know, a test and put him to the test. You want reliable military men. So Nuna Deen uh, puts him as uh, the head of police in Damascus, right? Um, and also actually before that, he had an even more, he had a role which basically involved carrying messages. So he was a messenger between the city of Damascus and the city of Aleppo. And it's, it's again, putting young sort of, you know, guy to the test is that that's a dangerous journey because you're literally living in a war zone. The cities are fortified. There's walls and there's armies and everything. But once you get out, it's just you, like a guy on a horse. And, you know, there's other armies and there's enemies and all kinds of things could happen. And you have to carry these messages back and forth. And also you break down the self, the sense of entitlement a little bit. Like that, that is a, let's say, a entry-level position. <laughs> so that's a most starting point, right? Like, oh, yeah, Stead's a messenger. We just use it for, like, send mail and stuff like that. Even though his dad and his uncle are, like, the generals. But you're putting him to the test. And, and, and it does seem like... Uh, kind of testing people's ability to stay humble, right, was was a huge part of the, the process, at least in the, the culture that he had built, because even for success um, on the battlefield, if you think of the purely as soldiers, you're going to need, like, leaders on the battlefield who are humble, who are humble enough to make the right decision. And not They're not going to let their ego get involved. It costs you, like, a lot just because their pride didn't let them do something that needed to be done. So Salafadine so put through these exercises, uh, and, uh, and then he becomes like the chief of police in Damascus for a little bit. Uh, and and th there's a, there's like funny poetry and like, it's funny to us, but there's, there's poetry about, uh, you know, his name was actually Yusuf. So it's obviously the actual name was, was Yusuf. And, uh, uh th there's poetry basically saying that, uh, there was the Yusuf who cut the woman's hands and there's the Yusuf who cuts the man's hands. Right. <laughs> right. Right. It's a lot more eloquent in the original Arabic, but I don't have it memorized. But basically, saying, one of the things that was apparent was his his ability to connect to people. He wasn't a, a leader who was like removed from the people, and this is going to just increasingly become more and more apparent. Now, what happens is that uh, his dad and his uncle have constantly been giving Nuruddin this advice that we gotta conquer Egypt somehow. Like again, everybody understands that. Nothing's going to happen. Like, it's just going to be status quo. We're all going to live our entire lives fighting these little battles. We're not going to be able to do anything epic or you know, ruin the empire or liberate Jerusalem, whatever the goal might be. 
nothing's really going to change until we do something about Egypt. Now, in Egypt, um, the Fatimid Shia dynasty that we mentioned, it was very stagnant by this point. You know, they had, so they're the, like the actual founders of an Azma, which is a famous institution. It was initially, ironically enough, a, a Shia Dawah institution. That's what it was established as, right? And, and it, the other interesting thing to keep in mind is that the, the Shia dynasty was in power, but the, like over 80% of the population, even they've been powered for hundreds of years, but it was a cosmopolitan society and over 80% of the population was still the Sunni, right? And just that they weren't in power. And, and sometimes they even were in power. Like they, it was a Shia dynasty. They would have like Sunni prime ministers. Again, the identities didn't matter all that much. It was all, again, same thing with the mixed armies, right? You got all kinds of movement happening. You got people doing all kinds of things. It wasn't so much about identity. But what incidentally happened was that uh, some of the high-ranking uh, officials of the Fatimid dynasty itself, because they had their own internal battles, politics, and all kinds of messy situations, they came to the strongest emerging power in the region for military support. And that was noted. So now they show up at his court and they are in a really unstable situation, right? Um, there's a statistic about how in just a few years, in the final years of the dynasty, they had like a crazy number of prime ministers and only three of them were not assassinated, right? So you get into the, the position, you're jockeying for it and get assassinated. It's a very, very unstable situation with it. And so each of those uh, people who are in the power play are looking for supporters from outside. That's how Salahuddin ends up in Egypt to fight more on behalf of one particular Fatimid wazir. Uh, and that, that fighting kind of continues on for, for about, you know, uh, a four-year stint, right? Uh, and so Salah uh, in those four years, obviously they're fighting battles uh, all across the route. You know, there's a certain route that you follow. Historically, that's the only route that's doable because you want to avoid like being stuck somewhere in the middle of the Sinai Desert or something like that. Then you're done, right? So there's that, but they're they're traveling and they're fighting these battles and some of the skirmishes, etc. And Salahuddin is really proving himself. And so Salahuddin eventually is given control of the city of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria, famous city in Egypt, uh, on the Mediterranean coast, but it wasn't under Fatimid rule anymore. So you have now a stronghold of the Syrians. Let's just call it that, like that group. So I would that all these guys for now, they refer to them as the Syrians, just keep it simple. Now the Syrians are in control of Alexandria, which is a crucial fort, right? And, and just a, a, a strategic location from a military perspective. And his uncle, Shirkul, who returns to Damascus and leaves Salahuddin in charge. And he's still, you know, in his, his late 20s, like right at the end of them, or his early 30s. And he's in charge now. Extremely crucial situations. He'd never been in a leadership position before. Not only that, but these are not his people, right? It's, he came from, from outside. So for Franz to the purposes, they should be like, how come you get to be the leader? You know, like they, they couldn't find anyone in the city of Alexandria. Why they bring in like some Syrian guy? And, you know, even there, he's not even from there. He's, he's Kurdish, like he's even further out in like northern Iraq. Um, Salahuddin, only in a few months, he's going to be the ruler um, of Alexandria, and Alexandria is going to be besieged by both the Fatimids by land and the Crusaders by sea, because both the Fatimids and the Crusaders don't want any Syrian stronghold in Egypt. That's a huge threat for them. 
and not only just any random town, Alexandria, which is a hugely significant city, how did they establish control over it? So now Salahuddin is in this situation where within the city, like you can imagine, you don't know where you can trust, right? You are an outsider and you don't have a whole lot of leadership experience of managing the actual entire community. You're like 30 years old and you're being attacked by land, by one army and by sea, by the other army. And your city is basically running out of food, right? And now the amazing thing is why did that siege last so long in the first place is because somehow Salahuddin won over the hearts of the people who had just arrived. And through the leadership qualities that would become apparent later on, he was a master at winning people's hearts, not at winning battles. There was a lot of guys who were probably stronger than him, who had maybe more military strategy kind of acumen than him, right? And we have like records of other people who achieved like, a lot of things militarily, but what they didn't know is how to unite the people. So Salahuddin comes in Alexandria in just a few months, he has the whole city or at least like a critical mass within the city in his support to the point that people are willing to die because they know that they're going to starve to death if the siege is lifted soon. And it's not just like some guys, but like families. Imagine your wife and your kids and you're, you're looking at them. And you know, you're like, there's there's no reports of any traitors. Nobody snuck out and said, let me show you a secret. This is how history works, right? It's always like that one guy on the inside who sneaks out to the other armies and I'll show you like the secret tunnel. You can come up to the city, like the Trojan Wars kind of thing. And, and conquerors and everything like that. Nothing like that happened. Eventually, Saladuddin is going to have to basically give up the city of Alexandria because it became indefensible, right? So he, for several months, they withstood the siege by both land and by sea. They're running out of food. And so they finally decide that, you know, we don't want the whole population to starve to death, obviously. So we're going to give up. We're going to come out and agree to a truce. And even in that, Salahuddin, you know, and, and the interesting thing is he comes out on his own terms. Like he's the one who makes the decision, okay, now we're going to abandon the fight. And even then he doesn't face any opposition from within, right? From, from within. So everybody's on board with that as well. Um, and so he comes out and it's agreed that the Fatimids will reestablish control over Alexandria and the Syrians will leave Alexandria and go back to Egypt, oh, sorry, not to Egypt, to, to Syria, where they had originally come from. And very, very interesting that the person who is negotiating the treaty is the ruler of the kingdom of Jerusalem, is a crusader. His name is Amalric. And he is the first person, even before Salahuddin is honored by any of the Muslims or anybody else, he's the one honoring Salahuddin. He said, this person has some unique qualities. So he was there because he negotiated the treaty outside of Alexandria. And he invites Salahuddin to his tent. And there's a story that developed later on, you know, so people take the actual story and push it further, right? So there, he's honored in all kinds of ways. Like this person has some kind of unique quality, right? SubhanAllah, like those unique qualities are going to really come for you. Again, just a few years. And everybody's like, this, is, this, this leader, this young guy is, is something different. Interesting thing here is Salahuddin returns to Syria and he's rewarded by Nuruddin as well because he's really made Nuruddin famous in Alexandria. Uh, who is this guy? Oh, yeah, his mentor is Nuruddin. So he really proved himself. So Nuruddin uh, rewards him with, like, we'll give you a certain amount of land and you can start to live your life. But Salahuddin is swearing that he'll never go back to Egypt at this point. He says, I'll never go back to Egypt. 
because he had such a difficult experience there. Even though everyone else is saying, you know, you achieve so much and it's incredible and whatever, but it couldn't have been easy, right? It could not have been easy at all. And that's reflected in the fact that Salahuddin is literally saying, I will never go back to Egypt no matter what, right? Well, what's going to happen? The Fatimids continue to have their issues, right? Now they're having issues with the Crusaders and who they return to for defense. Again, they show up to 1770. They're like, we need some help. Now the Crusaders are coming after us. You know, the, the, the shebang continues. And Nur um, al now looks at his most proven officer in Egypt, which is Salah the young guy. So he says, you know, you have to go. And Salah said, I'm not going. Literally, he said, I'm not going. Um, and you know, nobody can, can convince him to go until his dad finally intervenes Salah al-Din's father and he says, you know, Nur is your mentor. Like, he gave you everything that you have right now. Just just keep that in mind. So, like, you know, for that and for another like, number of reasons, you got to go. Uh, and they all had this dream of conflict in Egypt. And one of the reasons for that, by the way, is whoever controlled Egypt controlled Makkah and Medina. It's historically been the case, right? That was the main route for all the pilgrimages. The pilgrims and everything who were going to Makkah and Medina, not to mention the Red Sea trade route and all those things. So, so Egypt was so significant for so many reasons, like in Islamic history. So everyone wanted to kind of be involved in Egypt in some way. But, so there's all that. Um, but coming back, Saladin is convinced to go to Egypt. Now, this is his famous move to Egypt, that all the stories and everything are revolved around. He goes into Egypt. There's a few small battles. The Fatimids are there, even though they're the ones who called him, they're divided among themselves. So you have one Fatimid army that he's coming with, and you have another little Fatimid army that's fighting against the army that he's and you, like, this is very difficult to explain, to be honest. Uh, but long story short, he ends up in Cairo, and his uncle is with him at this time. Shirku has come as well. And Shirku, his uncle, is made the vizier of Egypt. Now, the uh, the Fatimids had a Khalifa of their own, right? And even now, like today, if you hear about the Abrasanis, like they have, they have like the, the Imami system, right? Like they have Imams. And so they had an Imam who was a religious authority. And then under that Imam was the political authority, which is the, the Wazir, right? And now Shirku, this Sunni uncle of Salafati, is the Wazir of the, of the Imam of the Fatimid that, that is my Shia dynasty. And incidentally, just a few months, very, very few months after Shirku uh, is in that position, he passes away. We don't know the cause of death and opens up speculation. And Salahuddin, this is going to happen several times where his enemies, or in this case, it wasn't his enemy, but you could say somebody who might have stood in his way, in the way of his story, just happens to pass away at a very opportune moment, like yes. in a very, very convenient moment for Salahuddin's story to move forward, yeah. right? This is the kind of speculation that happened. I think Yasuf Qadi gave a lecture about this and in a very skeptical way. And it was funny because he's, he's given, he's giving you the, you know, Salahuddin, we know about his character. We, we doubt that he would have done anything like that, you know, like uh, treacherous or anything like that. But it's possible, like, you know, you never know, he might have felt the need or, so this is going to happen several times. And we'll bring up those times and go to the story. But um, Shirku is now no longer the vizier. The next in line is Salahuddin. Now Salahuddin in his early 30s, 
has suddenly become the vizier of Egypt, right? Now, that imam physician that the Fatima uh, ruler has is pretty much symbolic at this point. Like, nobody cares what that guy, like, he has no actual power. He can't really enforce much. He just like rubber stamping, you know, things that even if he didn't do it, like life would just go on. So the real rule is in the hands of the vizier. So that's Salahuddin now, ruling Egypt. Uh, and he's going to very, very quickly consolidate his power in a place that he swore he would never go back to, not too long. Yeah. You know, he didn't like Egypt. He didn't have a good time. Now he's in Cairo. Uh, and he uh, is going to consolidate his power. And this is where those qualities start to, to really show themselves. He is so deliberate and he is so patient he is an extremely patient person right so he is um doing every step very very methodically like right and you know because leadership is is often seen in in that time as your 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 display of, of military strength and who you can subdue and as soon as you come to power you get rid of all your enemies right uh even if they're like you know perceived enemies that could be your own brothers could be your you know islamic history you know you got sons throwing their dads in jail and all kinds of things happening just for the sake of let me let me solidify my position of power now salahuddin is not doing anything right he's just very deliberately very slowly uh solidifying his power and bringing the spirit of a sunni revival into egypt because all the institutions are Shia, all the culture is heavily, like even among the Sunnis, you know, there, there's heavy Shia influence because they've been under Shia rule for so long. Uh, his supporter in this is going to be a person named Qadi al Fadi. Um, and it's very, very important. Uh, his name is Wahid uh, al something, something. He's famously known as, as Qadi al Fadi. Uh, and for the next 22 years, basically until the end of Salahuddin's life, um, Claudio Fadin is going to be his right hand man, and he is exactly that type of person that Nizamul Boilkan Imam Ghazali had dreamed about generations earlier. He's both a Qadi and he's very experienced in politics. He knows how to run the economy. He knows the society. He is the perfect jurist bureaucrat. And this is the thing: like these are the the figures around Salahuddin that are going to be crucial in his story. And, you know, in fact, Salahuddin later said that um, Salahuddin's victories didn't come through the sword of Salahuddin, they came through the pen of Qadi al-Fadil. And at crucial moments in his story, you'll see Qadi al-Fadil intervening, and obviously Salahuddin having that humility and creating that culture where people feel uh, open to advise him, to correct him, you know, give him course correction and guide him give him perspective that he might not have. Um, and, and just a very, very quick note, I think it's fascinating. Qadi al-Fadil is a Palestinian. Uh, the other thing about him, by the way, people used to call him when the hunchback. So there's indication that he might have had like a physical disability. Basically, people didn't think much of him, right? So they would like satirize him and poetry and all these kind of things, but people leave their mark in history, right? If they're, if they're meant to, or if they're, if they're focused on that. So. That partnership develops, and Salahuddin really starts to develop personal relations now with the Ulama, with the scholars, right? So he remember, as soon as he gets the, the position of being the wazir, he is in a position to abolish the Fatimid dikes, right? But he doesn't do it right away. He slowly works out 
you know, and, and you want to, you want to make your mark immediately and you want to, you want to show like the people of Egypt at this moment that there's a, there's a new sheriff in town, like I'm in charge. And, and this is, again, this is the thing about what we're comparing Salah Hadid to most other rulers in Islamic history. Cause we've seen like, you know, you, you, you read anything in Islamic history. You're like, I've seen this movie before, right? Like, like this is plays out and just a cycle of again and again. So he's, he's standing out among all these other rulers that we know from Islamic history, from his time, from the same culture. In the sense that, you know, he's, he's, uh, challenged by a military rebellion by, uh, especially the Sudanese regiment in the Egyptian army, very early on in his rule, they were incited because he has opponents, they're not out in the open, but they're inciting the soldiers to rise up in rebellion. He's successfully able to put down a rebellion. And then there's a crusader attack. He's successfully able to repel the crusader attack. Right. And then there's like a, a political plot against him to basically get like certain people in key political positions to, you know, only unite against him and break him down. And he's able to navigate that as well. Like, and, and really his skill, his skill, Salahuddin's one skill in my opinion, diplomacy. Just, and, and you think of him as a great soldier and a great warrior. But his skill was diplomacy, his ability to speak to people, his, his communication skills. If you ask me from a, a, a perspective of human effort or what liberated Jews, right? Just his communication skills. And for that, we need to be patient, right? So you have to develop relationships that will open up doors of communication for you. And we'll see that again and again. So, so for example, um, he consulted let's say something you would take for granted or think it obvious. He consulted for months and months with the Sunni ulama about whether he should abolish, whether it would be halal for him to abolish the Shia Fatimid dynasty, right? Now, we don't have the records of the conversation, but we can imagine like some of the ulama at least looking at him be like, is this not obvious? Like, well, why is this even a question? Well, what are we waiting for? Why is this taking months? Or let's say, like, it's literally taking months. So he's taking his sweet time just to decide and clarify in his own mind, is it halal for me to abolish this Shia dynasty that's done so much, you know, damage to the people of Egypt and all of these things. And when he finally comes to a conclusion, he walks right in and he abolishes it, right? Uh, so he converts Al-Azhar. That's an ongoing legacy of Salahuddin, by the way, you know, converting Al-Azhar to a Sunni madrasa which it continues to be even to this day unbroken since that time that he did that. Um, and, and really just uh, instituting the same kind of uh, religious revolution that he had seen while growing up in Damascus. So madrasas are being built and, and uh, scholars are, are being mobilized and being brought into communities where they need to be brought in and given positions of power, right? So he's, he's organizing his government now. He's forming his his cabinet and to say like in our terms of ministries and who's going to be in charge of what and all these things who's going to be the second in command even even things like uh, you know like what kind of uh, calligraphy style are we going to use and this is the thing where right? he seems to have understood that the same thing that Nuruddin understood the same thing that Imam Ghazali understood you need to change the culture stop focusing on the development of individuals because that individual that you focus all your effort on could go sideways or they could pass away. All kinds of things could happen, right? And you devote everything to that one individual. You don't know what's in their future. The safest way to go is to actually try to transform the culture 
so that everybody could thrive and whatever level they're bent to thrive at. And the scholars say, like and the historians say in our tradition that before Salahuddin could raise an army to liberate Jerusalem, an army of religious scholars had to be raised. So it was, and that becomes a channel of communication as well, right? So now like you have the, the, the fervor, because remember, originally there were all of these Muslim rulers, but there was only one who really seemed to have been interested in liberating Jerusalem. That was Nuruddin Zaki, original, right? How do you get this idea, this focus on liberating Jerusalem into the minds of like the average Muslim in the area, to the drinking water? You do it through education, right? You do it through like you, you train like a hundred imams in this madrasa that you built in Cairo and you install in them like these ideas or you fix them that this is the way to go, right? And down there, you're going to go to like a hundred different masjids and give a khutbah for you. And those, that's going to be like a 50 people in each masjid listening to what the imam is. So now you see how this process like really gets into these where people are like getting fired up. Like this is something we've been neglecting. And the, for the people of Egypt specifically, like they finally have a chance because they were under Fatima and Bul. Before they couldn't do anything anyway. So what are they going to do? Right? There's just a, the, the government in charge has no interest whatsoever. But now people are kind of getting fired up. Um, and so Salahuddin is able to quickly uh, institute many changes uh, to the local culture and also get rid of a lot of corruption. And that's consistently in history. Whenever you show people that you're committed to justice, they will, they will follow you. Right. And so uh, a few things interestingly actually is what he's most known for is um uh because it was the main route to Makkah and Medina, the uh you know, the 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 people who were controlling strategic ports or you know, boating companies in the Red Sea or whatever, they were making heavy money, right? Because they're they're like charging like whatever tax they want and there's no regulation. There's a breakdown in the later years of the Fatimids. So he abolished like all the taxes and then tried to make it as easy as possible for pilgrims to be able to reach Mecca and Medina and do their own and all of their Hajj and things like that. Once he's consolidated his role in Egypt, uh, a major roadblock for Salahuddin is going to be tensions that develop between him and his mentor, right? Nuruddin Zaki. So, I've said, you know, this is where relationships can be interesting when it's, but it's more of like a, you don't have a contract or anything. You don't have any kind of agreement, but you have a good faith relationship. Like I didn't, this, this isn't for you. Like it's time to kind of return the favor a little. So now Salahuddin's in a much more stronger position than Nuruddin once he's consolidated power in Egypt. Because Nuruddin is just like, he's just, you know, ruling a tiny empire around Damascus. Salahuddin has Egypt. So Nuruddin is expecting some of the money, like some of the taxes collected from Egypt can come through to Damascus so he can pay his own army and, and develop some of the things that he's working on. And Salahuddin is what? And what's going to be a constant problem in the life of Salahuddin? He's too slow, right? He's too patient. He's thinking, and we would, I don't know, maybe we call him an overdicker or something like that. But he's really, really methodical. Like, you know, the is saying, like, I, I need the money, like, you know, send it over. Like, technically, this is the Zakit Empire, like Salahuddin is ruling on behalf of Nuruddin, right? So Nuruddin should be able to call the shots. And Salahuddin is like, you know, kind of placating him, like, yeah, it's coming, you know, I'm going to send it. Obviously, like, I'm not like selfish or I'm not keeping it for myself, right? So like that, like, it's going to come to you, but I got to figure out like certain things before I do that. Like, I'm, I'm in a complicated situation here. 
Uh, and so these tensions start to develop to the point that it seemed like they were actually going to fight each other, right? So imagine, right, that after all of this effort that Fiyuruddin put into changing, becoming enlightened and changing the education system, and Salafuddin did the same thing in Egypt, all that enlightenment, but because of like some one issue, you're almost fighting each other again. So you would just become like any other rulers in the region. And the Crusaders, you're just in the mix now. You're just like other guys, yeah. right? So what happens after that? Nuruddin passes away, and now there's a power vacuum uh, that's left because Nuruddin was a strong personality. He was a strong leader, and Salahuddin knows that. And he knows that like Nuruddin's children and the remaining members of his family, one of them is going to come into power. Like, these guys just don't got it. Like, we conquered Egypt on behalf of Nuruddin, and now Nuruddin himself is no longer in Syria. So Salahuddin says, I got to go back to Syria now. I consolidated my, my rule in, in Egypt. I got to go back to Syria and establish my rule there. And the people there already know me. It's technically supposed to be easier, right? You go there, the people know you. They saw you when you were like 14, 15 years old, running around, sending messages. And later on, you were in the police. Maybe they don't like you for that reason, but they do know you, right? So he comes in and he went into Syria, right? But he's not taking any chances. When he finally comes to Syria, and they obviously welcome him because he's one of them. He's ruling Egypt on their behalf. Um, immediately gets to work in the same thing that Nuruddin was doing before him, building public works. That must needs to be repaired. He improves the, the water supply system. Like he just shows up one day and gets to work on these things and gets his, his people, like his supporters or soldiers, like, to work on fixing the, the water pipes at the Uwayan Masjid in Damascus. Like you can imagine, and to be honest, it's a huge public relations exercise. Like this is what he was very good at is again, like we said, diplomacy with his enemies and public relations with the people who he was ruling, right? He was very, very good at these things. He was inspiring people to follow him, convincing them to follow him, not forcing them to follow him. Another thing he does, by the way, interestingly, is he marries Nuruddin Zangi's widow. Right, uh, whose name was uh, Ismatuddin uh, Sadun. So he marries her, and people assume that it, it might have been a lot of his best, right? With so there's a political arrangement, and obviously it did help him politically because he's he himself becomes part of the family of Nuruddin, right? In a way, he is he, he marries his widow after him, and uh, he did later on express like like a lot of love, like very openly for her. In fact, like. She passed away while he was on one of his campaigns and the people knew, his supporters and advisors knew that they were so close to each other that they did not tell him for months, Salafuddin, that his wife had passed away. But they found out, but they didn't tell him. And he kept writing her letters for months. And she was already, she had already passed away. He would send her like these letters and give her like updates, you know, like what's going on. And whatever else might happen between a husband and wife in terms of communication. And it's really sad to imagine, like he's out in campaign somewhere. He doesn't even know that she passed away. One way letter campaign going, you know, and nothing coming back in return. And then later on, obviously he found out. Um, but um, yeah, she was in her sixties and he was in his late thirties when they got married. Uh, I don't know particularly her age, but uh, I don't think she was in her sixties. I think she might've been closer to his, his own age. Really? Yeah. Because you know, like this is, the age difference thing might be more of a modern issue, but like Nuruddin, you would expect that he might have, first of all, more than one wife, right? And then uh, beyond that, like she did, Salahuddin have one wife. Uh, I believe Salahuddin had more than one wife. And by the way, like 
keep it real, like like concubines and all these things, like a lot of the it's just part of the culture at the time. Now I heard that he he married her because she was a, an active and powerful ruler after Nuruddin passed away. Yeah. Um, and you said that might be the case, that may not be the case, but that's I find it so strange that he married his mentors. Yeah, well, welcome to Islamic history, all, all kinds of, and to be honest, like there, there's, uh, the whole remarriage situation, and there, there's precedent in, uh, in, in the stories of the Sahaba as well, you know, like, like, uh, there's people, there's a Sahabiyat who are married to like four different, like famous Sahaba, like one after another getting martyred and marrying someone else. And this, this right. I feel like they, they, they understood marriage differently than we do today. Oh, absolutely. There's more of a possessive aspect or possessive mindset to our marriage today, both for men and women. Yeah. Back then it was like, it wasn't seen, it was more of an honor. I'm honoring your uh, widowed wife by marrying her and taking care of her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like that, that, that literally what you just said is probably the primary reason that, that you know, I, I'm not letting the family of someone who has passed away, who was close to me, just be a badness. So I literally will take on the responsibility at the closest level possible by re you know, marrying the widow or, or again, like usually if, if she had children, we're not sure if that was the case in this case, but that, that the children become part of your family, not that adoption, like in the Western sense, but they become part of the family as well. So uh, I think that's a very important, like kind of point to keep in mind. Um, yeah, see, cause nowadays. Oh yeah, <laughs> you pass away, and then your best friend marries your your widowed <laughs> wife. You're like, has he been thinking about this for a while? I don't know. I feel like he'd be a little upset about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, uh, 21st century Dallas and uh, 12th century Damascus are are uh, sounds kind of similar, but it's actually quite quite vastly different. You know? So so, anyways, and and by the way, so I've been on that note since we touched on it. Another thing that he was known for was being a very sensitive person. Um, someone who would tear up easily. He would tear up very, like, there's multiple records, like, publicly of, of he would uh, get the news of, you know, as, on the one hand, you're a hardy warrior because that's the only way you survive on the battlefield. Like, you gotta be, you gotta put emotions to the side a little bit. You gotta do what needs to be done like, on the battlefield, right? Like, constantly. And then at the same time, like, very, like, almost a sentimental person. He would read a letter about somebody he was close to and, the person passed away and people would see like him crying, like, you know, tears in his eyes and stuff like that. There, there's one instance of a very critical castle later on, once he actually started fighting the Crusaders, he's besieging a very crucial castle that's on the route between Syria and Egypt, right? And so that means it's so significant because the Crusaders are ruling the castle and they could cut off your supply chain, your communications or everything because that castle oversees the main route between your two sort of nodes of power. So he's besieging it. He needs to take control of it. And they're having a wedding inside the castle, right? And so they know him so well by that point. And they either, by the way, the Crusaders were keeping a very keen eye on Salahuddin ever since the time of like way earlier when he had been honored by Amalric, right? They said there's, there's something different about this guy that's keeping an eye on him. Not to mention that he is the prodigy of their number one enemy, Nodadin Zaki, who eventually passed away. Um, and so the people who were having the wedding, the crusaders inside, they open the doors while the siege is happening and they come up carrying all of this wedding food and they walk straight to like Salahuddin's tent while there's a siege happening, right? And 
they present him the fruit. And they, basically, they know that if they're able to convince him to be a wedding guest by giving him the food, this situation is going to change dramatically. So he, they present the food to him and he accepts the food from them, right? So he's become the wedding guest. And then he says, okay, which part of the castle is the wedding happening in? And they say that he, you know, it's happening in a particular part of the castle. So he gives instructions, stop bombarding that part of the castle, right? They're having a wedding in that part, even though, you know, you could take advantage of the situation. Like you, they're enemies. We're at war with these people. We're here, out here, you know, sweating, living in tents. And God knows going through what, like for a reason. Like, okay, let's go easy. And then he just abandons it altogether. He's like, let's, the siege can happen later. Just pick up, pack up and go, right? Just because they brought him out like some wedding food. So, so he did have like, and these are the qualities that like unforgettable, right? Unforgettable kind of qualities that people experienced with him. And clearly they did not forget. But anyway, so, so that's been one particular incident. So now he's trying to consolidate his rule over Syria. But Syria is actually going to prove a lot more difficult than Egypt. We mentioned earlier that it might have been easier than Egypt because he had roots in Syria. He had grown up there. But Syria was very divided, right? So that was one issue. The other issue is he was very keen on his Kurdish homeland and the city of Mosul, which is like the cultural center of the, of the Kurds, even to this day, right? Or one of the cultural centers. Conquering that. Right. So he has two cities in mind. Jerusalem is not the one yet he's going after, which is why I said earlier, he's not fighting either. You know, he started fighting the Crusaders late. And he spent actually like only maybe around five years of actively going through war against the Crusaders. The rest of all this time was consolidating his power in Egypt. And then like, you know, 20 some years of pretty much fighting other Muslims in Syria in northern Iraq and trying to consolidate his control in those regions. Now, this is going to cause problems between him and his advisors and everything because same issue as before. What is taking you so long? Like, you know, everybody knew that as long as Damascus and Cairo were on the same page, um, you know, you could take Jerusalem. So they're like, why aren't you doing it? Because he actually did break Damascus and Cairo on the same page. They're all their one ruler. Even the Crusaders know that. They have all kinds of anxiety, what's going to happen. But he's so focused on Aleppo and he's so focused on Mosul. He put all this effort into like, uh, you know, it's like we're talking year after year of, of, you know, besieging them and trying to do diplomatic work and he's running around. Um, and there's, there's going to be a couple of events. Again, we're talking years here. So this is like an interesting time in Salahuddin's life, a very, very interesting time between his sudden rise to power in Egypt and when he actually starts fighting the Crusaders. And at that was, people were noticing, like, okay, this guy, he's a prodigy of Nunatine. We clearly know that they had this vision. They've talked about it a lot. Um, he surrounded himself with, with, with scholars who are constantly reminding him. Like, and he surrounded himself with scholars that constantly took their advice as well. Uh, one of them was Imad al-Din Isfahani, uh, who would become a very close uh, scholar to uh, to Salahuddin. And, uh, you know, you have letters, like they would write him letters and say, like, what are the, uh, say things like, what are the pyramids of Egypt in comparison to the, the sacred holy precinct of Jerusalem? Like, constantly reminding him, like, hey, don't get too caught up in Egypt. You know, it doesn't matter. 
we don't care about this pyramid stuff or anything. Like Jerusalem is our third holiest site. So the scholars are pushing him and he's created a culture in which they feel comfortable pushing him, which is very important, right? You have to create the culture in which the honest critics feel comfortable enough to give you the criticism you're going to need to be able to do the things that you want to do. Uh, but the one criticism that he's not taking from them is they keep saying like, okay, Jerusalem, we're trying to guide him like, hey, back to Jerusalem, let's figure out what we're going to do about that. And he's still focused on going to Syria and, and kind of also. Is it because he, in mind, his vision was, let's unite the Ummah first, let's unite the Muslims first. That's exactly what it was. He is, is focused on uniting as many Muslims as possible that he feels are, and, and Aleppo really makes sense. Like people might understand if it was just Aleppo, it's very close by, it's a very strategic city, like he needs to bring it under his control. But Mosul is like all the way across the Euphrates River in northern Iraq, like all the way on the other side. Like, what are you doing? Like, now you seem less like a guy, like, like a, like a Ghazi, like someone who's, uh, you know, has a vision of liberating Jerusalem. And you look more like just like some empire builder. Like you're just building an empire for yourself and for your kids and what's going on here. Right. So there's going to be a few events that are going to get Salahuddin to really recalibrate because right? people are having all kinds of doubts and, uh, you know, trust is something that's difficult to build very easy to lose, right? Once people start seeing you just do the things that kings and emperors and stuff usually do, they're like, okay, like, you know, where, where's, where's the visionary young guy? Okay. He was young and he had all this vision, but now he's just like all the other guys. Like it's very to see this full south, right? Um, situation to do go south in this case. And this is a very interesting part of the crusades. That's oddly not often talked about, but. The Crusaders and Salahuddin has signed a truce. They had signed a truce because Salahuddin needed his, 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 uh, rear to be secure, right? So as he's fighting in the northern parts of Syria and in the northern parts of Iraq and most southern Aleppo and, and this region, he can't have the Crusaders come in from behind and attack Damascus and all these things. So he tried, he signed a truce with them that we will not attack each other and, and, you know, some other parts of the agreement. Um, now on the Crusader side as well. Not everyone had the wisdom, you know, they saw Salafadid as a big threat and not everyone had the wisdom to understand that this truce is, it's what's keeping the crusaders alive. Like if you actually want to go to war with him, he already has enough power. He just maybe is not convinced yet himself, or he wants to make it even more of a sure case, but he already has enough power to come after you and take the kingdom away from you. So the truce is a blessing for you, but there's always people right on the crusader side and the guy named less, you know, Reginald that. They have like long titles and stuff that I don't care to memorize. Like, you know, if there's a guy named Reginald that he's, uh, he doesn't like this truce idea at all. So he says, you know what I'm going to do or, or what it's perceived, I should say that he was going to do is he went down to the Gulf of Aqaba, right? Uh, which is like the Northern tip of the Red Sea. Uh, and he had some ships built there and, uh, he starts sailing into the Red Sea and this is immediately sending off alarm bells because the route he's sailing south with this small crusader army on these ships is the route to Mecca and Medina, right? So the alarm bells that are going off everywhere are these guys are now going for Mecca and Medina. Now, incidentally, they did end up going to course in Mecca and Medina. We don't know, like originally their mission might have been like trade, but it also might have been to actually like, let's, let's create a diversion, right? Things are getting kind of tense. 
in, in Palestine is the third holy site. Well, why don't we just take the war to like the first and the second holy site? Let's spread it out, right? So they land very close to that, that crusader army. They land very close to Medina. And now they're being chased by this other army from Egypt. Or, you know, people are mobilizing resources like, yo, let's go get these guys. So now they're being chased inland. So they, you know, come onto the land and they start running towards Medina, literally, right? And the Muslims in their mind, like the imagination is like, yo, oh my God, these guys are going to go there. They're going to dig up the grave of the Prophet So like, who knows what kind of desecration they're going to do and they're going to cause bloodshed and like the city of the Prophet and, and and now you've got, if you can imagine, from the Red Sea, this crusader army running towards Medina and like a Muslim army from Egypt running after them, like this chase down is happening. And thankfully, they finally do catch up to them before the crusaders reach Medina, right? And quick, very quick executions. So, they, you know, some of them are sent to Mecca just to make it a very, very public thing. And some of them in Medina, like, like the message is sent very loud and clear that this is not something that we're not going to sit by and you guys can kind of just come in and go to like Makkah and Medina and do whatever you're going to do there. Like, so the people who attempted that, they're like, you know, executed. But the question that's raised, because now the whole, imagine something like that, the whole Ummah's like, people were probably hearing about something like that in like India and like, and, and, and Spain and everywhere. Like now this is like an international thing, Makkah and Medina, right? What's going on there? And all eyes, at least in the central region, in, in like the Levant, you know, the Shah and Egypt, all eyes are on Salahuddin. They're like the person who's most well positioned to be getting rid of these guys completely. What is he doing? What, what was he doing in Iraq? These guys overfaded to Medina. What, what fight is he fighting in Iraq, in, the, in Mosul? And that's so important that, you know, he, where is he? Right. And, and this really like for Salahuddin, this is going to be the first turning point. The other turning point is he's going to fall severely ill. Very comforting point in terms of what? In terms of he's finally going to start the war with the Crusader. He's going to focus back on Jerusalem and give up his state about Mosul. Right. The second thing that's going to become a really crucial turning point for Salahuddin in this trajectory is going to be the fact that he falls really ill. We don't know the exact nature of the illness, but um, it seems like he had several like compounding illnesses in the last few years of his life, including all the years he spent fighting the Crusaders. He was he was very sick and he had boils on his body. And it just it, it does sound like very, very painful, like what, what he kind of had to live with in, in those years. But in the first instance, when he first becomes sick, he, it's very clear that he comes close to death. Right, very close to death to the point that everybody who kind of loved him, his extended family, you know, they were in different position. Everyone started to gather. People started to have conversations about who was going to rule his territory after him. Like it's a very clear cut. And the scholars like Imad al-Din, Istahani, and Gandhi and Fadin, like they're there with him, right? And, and he's not passed away, obviously. And once he starts to recover a little bit, Alhamdulillah, even we should say Alhamdulillah today, then he started to recover. Right. Once he starts to recover, they are very clear with him, especially the scholars. And they're, they're saying the only reason Allah has extended your life is you have to do like, look how close you came to death. And if you had passed away, who was going to finish the job? We've spent years and years waiting. You're trying to convince you and be patient and you're trying to get Aleppo and you're trying to get Mosul. And, you know, we might understand, we might not understand. And he failed on, on those fronts. He, he succeeded with Aleppo, 
Like eventually the people of Aleppo, you know, Jerry Sirkup's have this changing with tribe because this went on for years. Eventually they just, one day they just threw over their door. So let it, they're like, oh, let it burn down. Right. It's like, it, it's, it's very, like, the source it really does sound like that. Like one day they just go up in the doors and like, okay, let's, let's do this. We're, we're part of your head fire. Like, like, let's just go for it. Um, why did he have such a hard time with Mosul? Like, were they just that strong of an army? So, so Mosul, because he had come, you know, sometimes with your own people is the most difficult situation. So he's, that's the Kurdish sort of homeland and stuff like that. Right. And, um, they they actually were the worst uh, to Salahuddin, and in fact, you know, he would be besieging them, and, and he would also be trying to go easy on them, like not besieging them hard, like I'm going to destroy you guys and starve you to death, because they're his own people and they're Muslims. And the whole idea is to unite people, not to become like the oppressor, right? So his whole vision is like this is what I need to do to unite people, but that kind of put him in an awkward position where he couldn't go hard enough to actually put the pressure on them, really. But he also couldn't ease up because of his vision, like this is a crucial city for me to control. And there would have been obviously benefits for like, if you get a significant city like Mosul also involved in the anti-Crusader effort, but there's benefits to it, obviously, if you're able to do it. Uh, but they were completely not having it with him. And, and in, in their case, actually, the, their famous saying is that they used to yell at him or, or say to him like in communication that um, you are a dog working at its masters. Right. But basically saying like, we own you, like, you know, like we, you are like some minor, like little Kurdish family that went to Syria and got famous, but we are like, you know, the, the Kurdish lords and the nobility and like, you know, we, like we, you're like a dog for a master. Right. Uh, I don't like that at all. Oh yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Right. Someone said that to me, bro. <laughs> right. Um, but he still, he still come, you know, maintain his composure. People would insult Salahuddin and it's interesting. He would take personal insults, but he wouldn't take insults to his, his, the scholars around him. He would absolutely not tolerate his social scholars around him. So once he starts to recover from the scholars a little bit, that's when the gloves are, right? The gloves come off. And now at this point, he has united everyone that he wanted to unite, except the people of Mosul, right? The Crusaders, one, one thing to keep in mind is that they were only able to keep control on the coastal cities. Why? Because all their reinforcements arrived by sea. They couldn't go inland at all. So all their control, like Jerusalem was like the most inland that they could go. And that was like a special case. Otherwise, if you look at what they ruled, it was all, all the coastal cities, right? Um, he has, he has control over most of the region, like Northern Syria as well. He had the support of the, uh, of the Abbasid Khalifa in Baghdad, right? You don't need to like kind of rule over Baghdad to just have the nominal support. And so he has recognition, like he has all these resources and everything, strategic locations at his disposal, except Mosul. And interestingly enough, very soon a volunteer army is just going to start coming from Mosul, right? The same people where the rulers were saying, you're a dog barking at his masters. And he eventually abandoned the cause or the advice of the scholar and said, just abandon it. It's a completely lost cause. We've fight for years. Like we're not going to get anything out of it. So he came back and he started focusing his efforts on the crusaders. And just like that, sometimes like things have to work the way Allah has, has decreed for them to work, right? You can't force an issue at what he wanted and he was fighting for it literally happened as soon as he left that situation, So he walked away and they just came after him. So this is the beautiful thing about this, this army. And, and also the situation. So I'll, I'll talk about the situation and the army. So remember, Salah had a truce with the Crusaders, 
And on both sides, on Salafadid's side, as well as on the Crusader side, many people were like, we're taking an L for what, right? Like we're in a position where we could actually win this fight while we agreed to peace. Like, you know, what's going on? We're at the last days of the truce, one of the Crusaders uh, or one of the Crusader regiments actually attacks a, a caravan of pilgrims of Hujaj, right? Which was something that was absolutely like one of the main conditions of the truce was that the pilgrims, the pilgrims have to be protected when they're going to and from Hajj, wherever they might be going from the big, the caravan, the pilgrims should not be attacked, even if, you know, we have some tensions or whatever. So they attack, right? And that breaks the truce. And now they are doing the same thing. They're coming to him. They're like, can extend it, you know, look at all the economic benefits and the trade and the prosperity and all that. So I at this point, he's finally saying after all these years, like it's, it's over for y'all. <laughs> Absolutely not. Right. Um, and then he's, he's bringing together this army that has never been seen before in living memory at that time. In what sense? Maybe not in terms of sheer numbers, but in terms of diversity. Right. You have not seen, if you're living at the time, you can't remember a time when you had an army which has like Yemenis and Egyptians and Sudanese and, you know, like the Syrians and the Palestinians and you got like the, the, the volunteer army from Iraq destroying up like the, the people of Mosul and, you know, you got like the people of Aleppo and some of them are Shia and, you know, like you have an army that's like diversely. So in Salahuddin's effort, from that standpoint, like I've imagined just visualizing this army, it paid off, right? Not even in terms of the size of the army, because you could get like here with the army, like 30,000 people, which is from, if I recall correctly, that's like approximately the size of it. You could probably pull 30,000 just from Egypt, right? It could have been just Egyptians, but at the critical moment, you would be fighting, like you'd end up like fighting some Syrians and some of these guys and some of these guys and like your whole army dissipated and distracted and the whole thing is just completely messed up, which is what happened again and again. They were all ending up fighting each other. They'd raise these armies, but only end up fighting each other because everyone felt threatened by everyone. He united them around a vision where like in the case of Mosul, they didn't even care about their own leaders or like whatever the nobility or whatever was saying. They're like, no, we want to make part of this, right? Our, and then again, that that messaging had been spread through the madrasas, through this consistent, organized system of communication and education, where you did have an entire generation was raised around a particular vision. So when the right leader showed up, it wasn't just that the leader did all the work to convince each individual that, no, I got to go out and contribute to this. It was the fact that they, they had already inculcating that vision among themselves and they got the opportunity and they were ready to take it. Right. Which is why, which is why that it's not, you know, people take the numbers the wrong way. They're like, oh, look at how long Salafadid spent, you know, attacking other Muslims compared to Crusaders. It's like, you're not making the point you think you're making. You're saying that, you know, if he was just hungry for power or that he was fighting Muslims or that he was fighting non-Muslims. But the reason he spent so little time fighting non-Muslims is because that was like, just, you know, it was just one battle. The battle of Hatid happens very quickly after he assembles this army, and that's it. The road to Jerusalem is wide open, right? The actual work that Salah Hadid had to do, the painstaking work that you have to be patient with, was actually getting people on board for the vision, right? Just getting people to think the right way, and the execution was so easy, right? The execution of that entire vision literally took no time at all. In fact, he prolonged that as well. Imagine people's frustration. 
like even after the Battle of Hattin. So the Battle of Hattin, which is close to Jerusalem, which is called the Fords of Hattin. Uh, and it, it's like, you know, there, there's all kinds of, I'm not a military historian, so there's all kinds of detail that the military historians go into, like, you know, there was like a strategic kill and like a strategic spray of water. And basically the long story short, from what I, you know, recall is that the Muslims uh, were, first of all, a much larger army. Uh, and as because the Crusader kingdoms were even divided among themselves, like where are they going to get 30,000? So they, they had the problem that Saladin solved for the Muslims because they couldn't get like, you know, from the other Crusader kingdom, the kingdom of Jerusalem couldn't call for help for the other, from the other Crusader kingdoms. But they're like, yo, I saw you, like, saw you guys, like, you guys defend yourself, we're all doing our own thing here, right? And that's what the Muslims would have continued to do for who knows how large Saladin had not reunited. So the Crusaders have a much smaller heart pattern. They're super anxious. They're super like, um, unprepared, right? Because they, they were enjoying the truce for a while. I and mean, they, they thought they were just going to extend it, that things would be like nice and comfortable for a long time to come. So things have taken a sharp turn very suddenly. And now when the Muslim army has the advantage of time, they arrive at this strategic location called Hadid first, and uh, they're able to control the local water supply, right? Take control of it. So now they're blocking the Crusader army, which arrives later from any access to water. So, you know, it's... Uh, it's said that the two armies, uh, and, and it's also a very tight area, like that's actually like walkable in that in that particular place. So it said that the two armies were so close to each other the night before the battle that they could hear each other's prayers. So the Muslims are praying, you know, making dua like for the success in the battle, and the Christians are doing the same thing, and they could hear each other, right? Because the armies are literally like probably guys sitting right next to each other, like they're in different armies, right? And um, and then in the morning, like around like dawn time, very quick battle, very decisive battle. Like it was almost like they should have just surrendered, to be honest. But it was it was a lost. It was it was like a last ditch effort for them. Like maybe by some miracle, like something will happen, and or maybe we'll at least like you know kill Salahuddin. Let's we can do something to discourage this from going further. But completely destroyed army, dispersed army, and after that, the road to Jerusalem was wide open. And Salahuddin did not take it. Very interesting, right? Again, he's not gunning for the moment of triumph. And that's what frustrated so many people so often. Okay, let's go for it. Okay, let's go for it. He's like, no, I'm going to take my time. Okay, let's go for it. No, I'll take my time, right? So in his mind, he says that we need to cut off access for the, for the reinforcements. So we defeated this one army. But unless we get those coastal cities, remember we said that the, the Crusaders ruled most of the coast. Unless we get those coastal cities, they're just going to keep sending more ships, right? Full of like these, wherever they find these people in France or Germany or whatever it is, that all these guys are coming from, they're just going to keep on coming. So he said, we have to, before we even focus on Jerusalem, which is pretty much ours now anyway, we just have to officially go and establish control. We have to go to the coastal cities. So it goes around Jerusalem. And starts to, you know, Hakkadar and some of these other very strategic coastal cities established uh, control over them. Actually, sorry, Akka is the one city that he skipped because he was facing so much pressure to get to Jerusalem. And Akka was taking some time. So some of the other cities fell very easily. Like it's like falling with dominoes now. The one that's difficult is the city of Akka and said, well, kind of, it's difficult to take right now. So we'll come back to it. Let's go to Jerusalem. And the third crusade would literally come through with that crusader stronghold on the coast of Akka. So, you know, when we, when we talk about the famous stories of Richard the Lionheart and, and Salahuddin's engagement with these 
figures who became famous. I think his third crusade is what really made him famous. Um, it's important to keep in mind that context of how and even like you know was allowed to happen, and through which the Muslims almost lost Jerusalem again through the Third Crusade. It was almost another successful crusade for the Crusaders. Like they almost, after all this effort to regain it, they almost lost it again. And so let's think of it this way: Let's say he hadn't uh, gone for any of those coastal cities, right? The Third Crusade could have been much bigger. Right, they would have had even more places to land and organize themselves and come in and do all of those things. In which case, they might have lost Jerusalem again. Right, so even here, despite the fact that it was a minor error and the Third Crusade did happen, nevertheless, it was his his vision or his brilliance and his diligence with which he was going about that entire effort. Just like he did from day one when he came into power in Egypt, he wasn't rushing into anything. Right, he was he was doing his diligence and being very patient about it. Um, so we we can't actually even use this story to his credit, right? It's it's very very kind of straightforward. But anyways, by the by the moment, right? You you move towards Jerusalem, you can imagine. I, I love saying this again and again because I'm imagining like I'm just like Salahuddin's sidekick or something, right? It's like I'm just going with him all these years, supporting him and doing whatever it takes and personal sacrifices and contributions and all that. Now you're right outside Jerusalem. And there's no one really inside defending the city. They can go in whenever you want. And Salahuddin says, let's wait. Right? There's literally nothing stopping. What are you waiting for now? He's like, I want to go on the same uh, date in the month of Rajab. I want to enter when the Prophet happened. So on the date that the Prophet traveled from Mecca to Masjid al-Aqsa, that's the date I also want to enter and see Master Upside. By the way, for the first time, Salahuddin has never seen the Dome of the Rock. I and mean, with all this effort, imagine not even having seen the place, like you have no visual of it. You've only like dreamt about it or you only heard about it from your elders and stuff like that, right? Uh, and most of his army hasn't either. All these Muslims that are fighting to liberate Jerusalem, they never even see the picture of it. They don't know what it looks like. So they finally enter when that date arrives. It was just like, you know, a few days away. And they go straight to work in the army to Masjid al-Aqsa to clean it up because the crusaders had obviously used that space, not allowing it to be used as a masjid, but they were using it for storage and horse stables and they could put up like crosses and, and um, all kinds of like, you know, they're kind of, they, they tried to like Christian by it, that's a word, <laughs> Christianize it maybe. Um, but, you know, they had to take down uh, very quickly and clean up the place very quickly. And the reason for that was because the day of Jumar was coming up very quickly. So they're like, okay, this is an opportunity. Like, you know, we want this mustard to be functional again in time for Jumar. We got to clean it up. So they're like burning incense inside and, and washing the walls with like, you know, rose water and, and just taking out all the, the crucifixes and everything else that the crusaders had put up. And as we mentioned, the member of Mimudid is quickly transported from Damascus to Jerusalem, and it's installed there. And you just have this beautiful, you know, this, this is 11, 11, 87, the, the, the year when this happened, and you have this beautiful scene when the day of Jumu'ah finally arrives, and now you got Salafadi sitting in the first saf, right? In Jumu'ah, just like the Masjid Amfu, mashallah, right? <laughs> sitting there. And you can imagine, right? But it was a day of celebration that has this described in like the sources, like on the day of Jumu'ah, obviously not during the khutbah or anything, but people were reciting poetry, and it was just like everybody was, imagine, where else would you be on that day? Like, where else would you be? Nobody would miss it, right? So everyone's kind of there, and like the whole city is concentrated there. And uh, 
he's sitting in the first sub and uh, there's the imam who he himself had kind of decided that I want this person to be the imam whose name I'm, I'm forgetting right now. But uh, anyway, so the imam ascends to the mimbaf, which we've been referring to. It's the same mimbaf that maybe somebody's grandparents are alive today and they actually saw someone give a football from that. But like, it's still recent, right? Uh, 1960s, right? Until like it was used. So that put was being given. And it's very interesting, the line, obviously, you know, they, the khutbah, first of all, is very generic, which is subhanAllah, it's recorded and it's, it's just a generic Islamic line, right? It's like, almost like we didn't skip a beat for all these years, right? There was for, there was absolutely 80, 87 years, 88 years, there's no khutbah, no jumrah, nothing, but we are Muslims, you don't skip a beat. Like we had a situation, we got rid of the situation, alhamdulillah. The khutbah is just going to be a generic Islamic reminder this week, subhanAllah, right? But at the end of it, the uh, the imam did say that um, addressing Salahuddin in, in the khutbah um, while he's giving it, he said, may Allah reward you with his greatest reward. And this is the interesting part. May Allah reward you with his greatest reward for the service that you have done for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right? And it's, uh, it's beautiful and it's very interesting that the way it was phrased that, you know, it might be your individual achievement, but at the end of the day, the greatest honor that you're going to have, right? Salahuddin for you, but your greatest honor is that you were a dutiful servant of Allah, serving the cause of the Prophet It's not about what you did individually or, or, you know, your accolades or your bravery or anything like that, right? And even on that day as well, in the context of his own time, Jerusalem is conquered on behalf of the ambassador created in, in, in Baghdad, right? So keeping that symbolic kind of connection alive and really not taking any kind of, you know, throne or anything like that for himself, Salahuddin. How did, when they entered Jerusalem, how did the people receive them? Was there any pushback at all? Into, and was, was the people in there mainly Christian? Was it Muslim? Were there Muslims in there? So the people were mainly Muslim. In Jerusalem, during the con during the conquest of the Crusades. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. They, they were Muslim, and that's a, that's a fascinating thing that, um, you know, keeping in mind that there were opposite the the people in power were Christian, but you know, there is this interesting dynamic in history that you you do try to keep some of the other people as well for a variety of reasons, but someone's got to do the work, right? Like there's got to be a lower class, and they can be a different religion, and all that's good because someone's got to do the work and. And maybe want to keep some hostages and there's different reasons why we we might want to keep some of the muslims still in the city of jerusalem etc so i'm actually not sure let me backtrack i'm not sure if they were like the majority in any sense the muslims at that point most of them had fled or a lot of them had been massacred to be honest 88 years earlier when the crusaders first arrived so um but but i do believe there was an existing muslim population within the city itself um but Obviously, there's a Christian population who, as you're alluding to, it might be a little bit anxious about what's going on right now. Like, now these are people 88 years. So some of them, like their great grandfather was the one in the first crusade. And now they, for them, it's just like, oh, this is just where we've always lived and we're not crusaders in that sense. Like, not like I came from Europe and the conquered some houses home, right? Similar dynamics that we see in other places in history, even in our own times. But uh, with Salahuddin, actually, one of the, uh, uh, first thing was that he was asked to do by the local Muslims was let's destroy the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is the holiest site for Christians in the world, right? Uh, and uh, he he listened to their proposal, and their reasoning was that 
as long as their holiest site is here, they're going to keep trying to come here. And they're going to keep trying to regain control of this place. So who knows how many crusades they're going to send because they're holiest site, right? Um, and he listened to the proposal, but it's very, very fascinating, right? Very simple answer. He said that would not be permissible in Islamic law. Mm -hmm. Let me just, like, we're just, it's not about my personal opinion. It's not about your personal opinion. It doesn't matter what they did to us. It's not about revenge and like they did this so we can do this. No, it's just halal or not, right? Is it permissible or not? Like the same reasoning he had used, like, you know, more than 20 years earlier is abolishing the Fatimid dynasty, halal or not, right? And, and sometimes it's just like the, the simplicity of, of deferring to the, the Sharia, right? Of, of taking a lot of the guesswork and my own feelings and emotions sometimes out of the situation. And just like, what is the precedent? What is allowed here? What's not? So basically, um, what's famous about Salahuddin's good treatment of the Christians is uh, of Jerusalem is the context of the Third Crusade. So the Third Crusade, very quickly, um, honestly, I know, and that's the one that made him famous in Europe, but I don't find it as significant, obviously, as the initial liberation of Masjid al-Aqsa itself. I think that's the more important part of Salahuddin's story for us. But just, just to complete the story, um, the third crusade is, is, you know, crusades were kind of constantly underway because it was, it was kind of good business for the, the Roman Catholic Church in, in Rome to constantly get people riled up and send them for crusades and, and you know, try, try to make something happen. They had seen success, right? Um, and, and even, even the, the fact that Salahuddin had regained it took it away from them might seem like a temporary success for him. It's like, oh, we can just put some more effort into it, go and get it back because we did it before, right? Like we had some experience with and we kept it for so long. So they sent the third crusade and it's kind of like a nice beefed up crusade with like resources and people and, and all this stuff. Like it is well set and it, you know, comes through. And, um, but there, there's a bit of a stalemate from the get-go uh, where Salahuddin is able to keep them at bay but at the same time, not forced them to, to leave the area. Like the, he kept like forced them back onto the ships and, and just give them no choice, but to go back to Europe. And at the same time, he's in a well enough position that he, like it's a stalemate. They, they can't advance it. You know, he won't let them advance. So um, they, they, they eventually agree to a truce as well about generally the raw treatment of the pilgrims, right? The Christian pilgrims who will continue to come, uh, and it seemed like Salahuddin had temporarily stopped pilgrims from coming after initially regaining Jerusalem. But we're talking about like just months of difference here. So maybe for a few months, they weren't allowed to come in. And then while well, they're figuring out the situation, or whatever the case might be, but then the truce was signed um, with the famous Richard, uh, the Lionheart, as well as Salahuddin. And, and this is where people really get to see his character. And it's going to be written about a lot. Because now he's so famous. Now he's actually the guy who took Jerusalem. Everybody is paying attention. The Muslims are writing every day, like closer to the end of his life, like that notes are meticulous, you know, yes. every detail of his life. And, and the same thing with the Christian, who is this guy? Look, you know, what one is different about him? They're paying attention. That's why you get so much detail about it. He was like this and he was like that. He said this and the third crusade records are extremely detailed. Uh, so anyway, they agree to a truce and the crusaders agree to leave if the conditions of the truce are honored. Especially the fact that many of these people in the third crusade had just arrived in Europe, right? So they've heard things, but this is their first time interacting with these people that they've, they've probably seen them be demonized. Like imagine up until this point, whatever news has reached Europe about Salah al 
is probably like sees a huge risk to Christianity. And we have this one particular story that's very striking in, in terms of visualizing it. You have this Christian woman from the Christian camp. Um, she runs towards Salahuddin. Uh, you know, in the context of the, the capture close together, they're having negotiations, whatever. Um, and, and she's able to kind of get close to him and just drop on her knees in front of him. And she takes some dirt in her hands from the ground and rubs it into her face. And she's like crying, like, um, you know, out of control. And Salafadim is very alarmed by this, that it's happening right in front of him. Um, and he inquires about like, what is the matter? Like, what, what's the situation? What's the, the deal with this woman? And it turns out that someone has mistakenly taken one of her children as a captive, as a prisoner of war, a young child, right? And he basically launches a manhunt in the entire, not only in the camp, but in the entire area in the surrounding towns and villages immediately um, to find the child and make sure that the child is reunited with, uh, I believe it was a, a male child and a son with the mother. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the Christian woman, instead of going to her own leaders, comes to him. Right, there's a recognition, and she's not someone who's maybe engaged with him directly, but his his reputation precedes him. And what kind of people, what kind of culture would he have had to have inculcated among military men? And if you know anything about military history, these are some of like the most you know the gruff, mean dudes who don't care about like the motherly stuff or whatever. You know, like like it's a it's a whole different world that they're in all the time. They've seen their comrades fall and stuff like that. So imagine you're like some celebrated soldier and now suddenly you're being told, like, go find this kid in the market, right? And like, everybody go on a read. This is like something, like it's something like a movie or something you'd imagine, right? Okay, all the soldiers, okay, yeah, yeah. Everyone's going to go find this kid. So they make that effort and they find the kid and they bring in the person who had mistakenly taken the kid, right? And they question the person and the person acknowledges the mistake and the, the child is, is reunited with like the mother. But the story actually doesn't end there because there's one more piece, which is that Salahuddin, when he saw the, the child or the mother like hugging each other, like he's, he's crying, he's bawling in public. But at the same time, this is the kind of re stuff that resonates and becomes embedded in the culture. You know what's interesting about Salahuddin, when we talk about these stories making their way back to Europe, who was, who was circulating these stories? Like who was spreading this legend of Salahuddin? It wasn't like the king of England that was holding like a conference about Salafadina spreading the knowledge. It was the average people. It was the poor people, right? If the villages, you had storytellers generation after generation telling the story of this, you know, legendary king of the infidels. And it was like the people, you know, like Dante, like the people who came up from like the lower realms of society because, you know, justice is a language of its own. They see it. They know what kings are supposed to do. And they have seen other Muslim rulers. Right? The Christians have seen other Muslim rulers. Right? They've seen a lot of them. But have they seen the same kind of behavior? That's, that, that's the, the critical point here. Right? That The fact that the person who defeated us is so soft-hearted, is so mild-mannered. Right? He's, he's so like, this is a priority for him. And again, Salahuddin might have been seen as someone who was like better than like the average Muslim ruler and better than the average Christian ruler. Like this guy is truly something unique. Maybe he transcends religion, right? Which is why they would never ascribe that to his Muslimness. And this is, this is a, a thing to think about because 
they had seen other Muslim rulers. And I wonder how much of a role that played in them saying, oh, no, he's not a good person. He's not mild-mannered and generous and, and, and so kind and all these things because he's Muslim. Because you know other Muslims, right? It's something about him specifically. Right? That's a very sad thing to think about, that they couldn't say the same about every Muslim that they ever met in terms of their character, right? And so I think that that definitely contributed uh, to his image of, he became the definition of chivalry, like a legend, like a folk legend of what a, a person is supposed to be like in terms, of their, in terms of their leadership, in terms of generosity, the way he would treat people. You know, he made a very simple dial. I'll give you a quick tidbit. There's research on, at the Battle of Katyn, some researchers went in our time, and you know how like the army, they bring their, their vessels full of food. And in the course of battle, the vessels get broken, and you know, somebody clears up and things happen, but small fragments remain here and there in the ground, right? So they dug up those like, archeologically, and they actually scraped the food remains off of them and tried to reconstruct what kind of food did the two armies have? What were they consuming? And the Muslims actually had a more well-rounded diet with, with the carbs, basically, with the greens and everything like that, compared to the Crusaders who had a like more heavily like meat-based diet, right? And that reflects also in the fact, so they're, they're eating well. Muslims are eating relatively well. Right, but Salahuddin himself, we know from other sources that he kept his meals very simple. But they say, like, if anybody showed up, like, as a guest, right, and and particular attention to scholars as well as well as noble people from the Christians, like the meals, like, like the meals this guy would give you, you would not even imagine, like, where where all of this food was coming from and what kind of effort, but not for himself, right, not for himself. If you saw him eating himself, he's having a very very like relatively simple meal. So he's treating you again. Who does this remind you of? The Prophet right? The Muslims after the Battle of Badr, it's like the, the prisoners were saying that, wait, they're eating worse food than what they're feeding us and we're the prisoners, right? Where else do you see this in history? And everybody knows this. We know what human nature is like. We know what like toxic and corrupt and unjust leadership is like. We know what human beings all too quickly will default to so when you see an actual exception, it's like something crazy, right? How humble is this individual? How committed is this individual? Like, you know, regardless of the religious differences, I think we can all recognize a truly humble human being who is just committed to a cause, and that's something admirable, even if he is my enemy, right? And I think that's what a lot of the Christian we're seeing in Salahuddin, that he is, he is a generous, he is embodying all the values that our leaders preach to us, that we read about in our Bible that you're supposed to be like, you know, generous and kind and merciful and lenient and, 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 and that's to like, you know, other people who are just around you, let alone your enemies, let alone the person who is doing this is, we would say he's like a follower of Satan, right? Like that's the kind of ideas that circulated in Europe about Muslims, like they're devil worshipers and this and that, right? Um, but what is like, it's completely, you know, changing the, the perception of, of what a Muslim might be through like stories like this and small examples like this. Uh, and, and by the way, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that there's not too many specific stories we know about Salahuddin that we would associate with chivalry. And <laughs> in, in Europe, the stories just continue to grow. So it's like, let's say, 
in the time of Salahuddin, you have like these three incidents that are being circulated that he did this and this and this. The next century, you have like 30. And the century after that, you have like 70. Like it is like the number of stories just go grow with time because there's an audience for that. So now people are just making up stuff. They actually said um, the popular narrative was that he is such a good person. There's no way that he is fully Muslim. So what they said was his grandmother might have been a French woman. So not with these grandmothers. Then this was an information that was circulating in Europe that his grandmother was a French woman. She was captured by a Muslim, right? In the, in the context of the Crusades. And then the Muslim, you know, had relations with her and she was enslaved to him. And that's how, that's how you get to the progeny, which is Salahuddin. Like he's such a noble person. How come he has no European blood? How does that even make sense? And how did a non-European be such a good person, right? And then even that story wasn't exciting enough after a while. So then the official story came that it wasn't the grandmother, it was his mom who was a French woman. Right, so even since so, so now all of them they picked the French too to be the noble. Yeah, I mean, I mean, back in the day, even if they knew it, like the Crusaders would be called the Franks. Like it was all kind of big stuff. Now, like the French today might might I don't know. I mean, might be worse. I was gonna say, but that's a joke. No, no offense. But I'm just saying that um, it's uh, and and then the other thing is like you know now you're like naming you got like generations of Christian families in Europe's name named Saladin. Which is like just a Latin. It's not like a they deliberately, but they pronounced it the best way they could, and they wrote it like that. You know, we can't expect them as Salahuddin. Like you know, it's fair to say they use Saladin, and there you have generations of families where they're committing like the, the last name of every son in the family, Saladin, and you can look through their family tree, Saladin, Saladin, Saladin. Christian families in Italy have no relation to the Middle East or something like that. Just inspired, inspired by this individual, and all kinds of stories of. The point of making is as we go on, stories about him increase about his chivalry. There, there was many Muslim rulers yeah. that had relations with the Christians that were good rulers, including Omar ibn Khattab and so on. What made him stick to them so much more? What made him stand out to them? I think one factor that we would keep in mind is that the fact that they actually went back to Europe. So. In the case of Umar radiallahu for example, first of all, it wasn't a much of a prolonged conflict. Like Umar who came when Jerusalem was already uh, under Muslim control and he officially came to take the keys of it, right? Um, so he wasn't like the face of the conflict that they were regularly interacting right. with and going in between camps and sending messages. You know, you had like Abu Ubaidah, Jawar, Salim bin Wadid, others who were like more, more at the forefront. I think that's one thing. The other thing was that... Um, the so yeah. Do you have any other stories of his of his uh, relationships with Christians that stands out? Any other chivalrous stories? It's not so much a story, but the fact that he um, he really facilitated an exit for the Christians who wanted to leave. So through through Jerusalem now, like it, once the the truce has been signed, it becomes very apparent that now it's going to be under Muslim rule, right? Uh, and and it's going to stay under. Muslim rule, like, you know, as we know, is for like, you know, over 700 years after that until World War One continuously under Muslim rule, actually. Uh, but uh, the way he facilitated the exit, there's a lot of stories related to that uh, about, you know, him sending his own soldiers to make sure that the Christians who were leaving were protected from other Muslims. Now, imagine if you're just a Muslim who is waiting for a chance at revenge or something because you've heard stories about how just a couple of generations earlier, your family was massacred in the city of Jerusalem by these people. You know, like 
carried those grudges and those vengeances, or maybe even something more recent. Maybe like your brother was killed by like some crusader, or he was a prisoner of the crusaders and he was killed by them. Like all these kind of things are very realistic scenarios. And Salahuddin is putting his own army to work to protect the Christians who are leaving from being harassed or attacked by the Muslims in any way. Um, he, he did everything possible to, and it's, it's kind of funny because it's almost like he was, he's like, I'll do everything possible just to get you guys to leave. If I want to leave, like, please leave, right? Like, I'll, I'll provide the security, I'll provide anything you need, just like, let's, let's keep it moving. Right. So, but, but that's not like a, like a specific story, but there, there are a lot of details about how much of an effort he made for, so for the Christians who said, we don't want to live under Muslim rule and we'll go back to Europe. Right. Um, and they were making their exit and with their belongings and stuff like that. And, you know, there's no looting allowed, like no, like just going in and looting or harassing them as they're trying to leave or, or trying to steal from them on the road, like trying to get some of their goods or anything like that. They're protected all the way to the coast, onto the ships when they're about to leave. Like there's, there's a lot of, you know, and, and it doesn't take, like we, I mentioned before as well, to, to really convey to people that you are something special. You actually don't have to do like something with like super, superman style, like, you know, some super crazy epic thing, right? It's, it's actually sometimes the simplest things that are the most impressive that resonate with human nature because you know we all know the feelings like you know jealousy and revenge and we've all at whatever level at our whole lives and this has always been the case in human history it's all the same feelings and we all know that we're all human and you know like 99.9 percent of the people when they have the opportunity to get back at you to to at least humiliate you or put you down or, or do something like that like there's a good chance that they'll take that opportunity right different about this one individual that just, just doesn't seem very concerned with any of this, right? He doesn't seem very concerned. By the way, it's, it's important to note that he had the same kind of leniency and, and everything with the Muslims as well. Remember, we said he was actually, he almost seems like he was anti-war. Oddly enough, when you read through his biography in detail, it's almost like he literally did everything possible to avoid conflict and until conflict was the only resort. There was nothing left, and then he would go to war, right. right? But diplomacy constantly were like sending people gifts, like people, you know, like he didn't say. There, there's no record of him saying a word against people in Mosul who called him like a dog who barked at their at his master, right? It's just like he. It seems very like almost like otherworldly, like not even concerned, like what they said about me or what. Like he was so secure. The word we use in our times is an interesting one: insecurity. Right? When you feel insecure, you're always shaking up. Oh, you know, she said this about me. He said that about me, right? And, and a lot of rulers, I guess, a lot of these old time, like even Nuruddin seems to have a bit more, had like a bit more insecurity than Salah. Salah Dino just next level for what it seems like. Like he did not care, right? He would just focus on, on what he was doing and, and how he could get you on board. He could say anything you want to him and he'll get you the prophets of Allah when he was Right? The people of Thomas. Should I crush the, the angel is saying between two mountains? The Prophet was saying, no, because maybe from their future generations will be people who believe and who support this cause and all those kinds of things. So even in the case of Salahuddin, it seems very similar. It's like, okay, like, you know, I, I, I will wait. I will play the waiting game. I will be patient. I'm not going to rush into a decision. We're going to pull on my sword and kill all my enemies and 
you know, so that's the case with the Muslims as well, is what I'm saying, that he had the same patience and leniency and showing them a lot of generosity to the point that people could just not deny that this guy has to be sincere. And once you got people convinced that, you know, you are actually sincere, it's amazing what they'll do for you. They will ignore their own leaders from all the way to Iraq, right, Mosul, and walk all the way over to where you are in southern Palestine and fight for you every year. And then go back home and come back the next year just on their own. They're not being paid for it. They're not getting anything out of it, right? So it's it's really, really, really like, you know, inspiring. And it's not incidental that he's he's become this legendary, famous, famous figure. He, you know, even in the case of the Prophet Sallallahu you mentioned that, you know, he lives rent free in the heads of Western civilization. Like the number of commentaries and things that have been said about the Prophet in Euro-Christian civilization is, is absolutely incredible. And second to him from history is Salahuddin, right? Second only to the Prophet But because they dealt so directly with Salahuddin in the way that they didn't deal directly with the Prophet he's even more complicated for them to figure out because they, there's less things that they can imagine because their own sources recorded at the moment that this guy was amazing. You can't you can't change the story after that because so key different people over there, they all said the same thing. This guy was incredible character, strength of character. With the prophets and another center, you can play around because you can go all in the you know, you can you can do a lot of things because you didn't interact directly, it was an eyewitness or whatever, you know. So I think the point is, I think the point is clear. So uh, so how did he pass away? So or and when did he pass away after conquering Jerusalem? So Salahuddin uh, passed away about seven years after the, after the uh, uh, liberation of Jerusalem. So uh, in the 1190s, 1194, uh, he passes away. It's kind of a lot less than less than a hundred years after the first crusade even began. So the entire story played out of the conquest and then getting it back and all that within less than a century, you know. Um, and uh, it's, it's actually very interesting. So we mentioned that he had an illness, right? And he continued to, to live with illness and he would have boils and all kinds of things. And people were surprised by that as well. Like his, his personal patience, despite his illness, uh, you know, when you have boils on your body, if, if you've ever kind of you know, imagined it, I don't think it's a, it's a prominent uh, medical situation anymore in our times, but he would actually say, people would be like, how can you ride a horse? Right. And he would say like, I'm actually positive mindset, you know, he would say that, uh, I'm actually more comfortable on a horse. Right. And, and it's like, there's, I'm reading that thing. That's true. You have boils on your body, like the horse and you're bouncing around and, and you're saying you're more comfortable, but maybe it's just a reflection of his positive mindset. And maybe, you know, he had grown up on horses and he was it's kind of like, it could be a lot of things. Uh, but anyways, he had, he had these multiple illnesses and, uh, his, his one dream after doing all of this and the third crusade was done and now his children were growing up as well, right? And his children were becoming young adults and trying to find their own place within their father's empire, this huge empire. But he had to build it from scratch, right? And now he got these kids lined up who only grew up with like what's known as the golden cage in Islamic history of rulers who, who grow up within a golden cage, right? They're not you know, they, they live in luxury. They're also not allowed to fly and explore the world. And they're only let out when it's time for them to come into power. And at that point, because they've never been outside the cage before, 
then you let them out, but they fly right back into the cage. They're not engaging with the world. They're not achieving anything because the only world they know is the cage. It's this, it's this amazing kind of analogy that has applied uh, throughout throughout the Islamic history. Uh, but anyways, he becomes, uh, so his one dream, Salahuddin's one dream after uh, liberating Jerusalem and the Third Crusade had all wrapped up was to do Hajj. And Qadian uh, father actually advised him not to do Hajj that particular year because he says there's still like a few logistical things we have to figure out and it's too soon after the Third Crusade. Like if you leave for Hajj, because Hajj back in the day was like a really long journey. Right, it would take a long time. He's like, if you're out of the picture for a few months, you know, there's there's people jockeying for power. There's everybody on board, and now that we have a lot of power, you know, same situation as we had in Medina at the time of the Prophet You have a uptick in hypocrites, right? Now there's people who are only in it for the power. You had an army. You've got people. You spent a lifetime getting people together based on vision, and now you might have a bunch of hypocrites who just want power. And they're not willing really in it for the cause, all these kind of things. So don't leave now. Let's, let's figure out the situation. You could go next year. And the next year, subhanAllah, was not destined. He wasn't destined to live that long. So Salahuddin, uh, his, his uh, illness became increasingly worse. And there's this very sad scene, actually, that the Hajj caravan that he had wanted to be a part of, uh, Damascus historically is a departure point for the Hajj caravan to go directly south, first to Medina and then to Makkah. So they come back and the main, you know, the main arrival point then is also Damascus. And then people disperse in different directions from there. So now he's in Damascus and uh, the caravan arrives and, and it's described as it was a cold February day. Uh, and Salahuddin, and Imad al-Din Isfahani actually narrated this. And he said he stepped out of his home, like Salahuddin. He's like, and I saw him from a distance. I was talking to someone just on the street having a conversation. And I saw him from a distance and he seemed like he was kind of, you know, like when someone's not walking street when they kind of dazed and he wasn't wearing a jacket, which was a huge problem. Cause we, we know he already has illness problems. It's a very cold, bitterly cold February day in Damascus. It does get pretty cold. And then, you know, he's like, he's not wearing a jacket. So he's like, I immediately rushed over and other people saw him too, who knew him and everybody rushed over a leather jacket on him. And honestly, man, um, it's, it's painful to read that the last few days after reading everything about an individual's character, strength of character and everything he did for the Umrah, like his, his contribution is, is like, who else can we name in Islamic history after the Sahaba who we can you know, compare him to really, right? Very, very select list of individuals. Um, and, uh, but, but as the days go on, his, his uh, condition starts to worsen. You know, there's all kinds of, uh, situations that are described about him having fevers and everything that he was going through, he would pass out. Right. And Qadi al-Fadil is visiting him every day. His, men his mentor after Nuruddin was Qadi al-Fadil, this, this jurist and this scholar, for 22 years, his closest aide, right? So you imagine this relationship, and now he visits him every day. And Qadi al-Fadil says that when when we, like him and Imad al-Din, when we used to step out of Salahuddin's home after visiting him, there would be a huge crowd gathered just to see our faces. Because if our faces seemed a bit optimistic, people would be reassured that Salahuddin, he might be recovering or doing better. And if we seem sad, then people would be like alarmed. Uh, and he describes one particular incident where, uh, you know, Salahuddin was, was basically, he asked for like a pool of water, like a tub that he wanted to sit in for some kind of relief. And I can't recall the water was either too cold or too hot or something, the water that was prepared. 
And he said something very mild mattered. Like he said, can people not check the temperature of water? You, you can imagine a guy who's done so much. He's like, I've done everything for you guys that I could have possibly done. And now all I'm asking you to do is still a tub of water, but like the right temperature. I'm in a lot of pain right now. And like, you okay, like figure that out, right? But like so patient, so calmly, and just generally not even blaming where this specific person is like, they can't people not check the temperature of water anymore before they you know, fill a tub. And Claudio and Fadil stepped out when they were leaving. And he said to Ivan uh, Dini Spahani, he said, look at his character. He said, soon you will not find a character like this among the Muslims anymore. Also, one of his sons, there's a very, very touching interaction that you know, you can easily look up and, and find online um, just Salahuddin's final advice to one of his sons where, you know, the sons would come visit him regularly and they had their own government positions in different parts of the empire. So they'd have to go back. And uh, in, in this one case, uh, while the son was about to leave, like, you know, Salahuddin just called him back. Like, you know, as he's leaving, just called him back and comes, gives him some really touching, like, life advice. Like, almost like, you know, like the thing kind of somebody says when, you can tell when someone's talking to you, like, this is our last conversation. Like, this is it, right? So I'm going to tell you what really I need to tell you. I love you, whatever. And like, you know, in our context, but in the same way, in his own way, that's what he's saying. I love you. Here's some advice and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, he uh, said that he was, uh, uh, he was, he was knocked out. Like he was passed out. And he had the Claudia with him, beside him, reciting the Quran. Uh, and uh, he had Claudia father sitting on the other side. Uh, and uh, it was it was just like, you know, a certain recitation of the Quran. I'm actually uh, forgetting uh, the, I think it's, uh, No, it's not that. It's, it's one of the ayat, and I apologize for forgetting it, but we are like four hours into recording a podcast in my defense. Um, but, and, but anyways, it, it's about, you know, um, uh, basically like, like uh, let me just, so look it up. There's a particular ayah, I'll tell that to the audience, that was recited and it said that um, Salahuddin kind of, they had thought he had passed out at least, or maybe he had passed out, but suddenly a smile appeared on his face and he said, it is true. And those are his last recorded words. He said, it is true. And then, uh, and, and then sort of, he passed away. And uh, your father, you know, the, the scene is it's very touching. Like he steps outside of the room and then, the, the ideas for the close family to gather around, you know, the person has passed away. So like the women and the culture, like they start to, to cry. And that sound of women crying when it's heard outside is kind of like the indication that the individual has, has actually passed away. And there's a lot of really touching scenes about how uh, uh, he had given away all his wealth and he actually, for his shroud, uh, he borrowed money from Claudia Fabian was also not a very rich person, right? Because your father had more money than a ruler of Yemen and Egypt and, you know, the Hejaz and Palestine and Syria. So what was the, uh, what was the touching scene that happened? The touching scene that happened was, uh, when his body was brought out. So he was washed within his own home and, uh, you know, shrouded within his own home. And then when the, you know, when you actually see the body and, and it's, it's shrouded. So it's not like you actually see the person, but you see a figure. Right. And you know exactly who it is. And I think a reality just hits you when you go to like a funeral and or in any context, when you see something like that, that it's, it's really that person, but that's really their shape, but they're wrong. Right. So, so that is the touching scene that when, when people saw, uh, 
him being brought out, like just the crying in the streets, like out loud, like people were just like started wailing basically is his, is the description that is given. And it's just not giving it a lot of detail about what else happened, you know, his janazah happened and, and it just went through like. So what was the advice he gave for some yeah, so the advice it's it's very, uh, the reason I didn't tell you is because it's it's delivered so poetically, mashallah, that I don't want to I don't want to do injustice to it. Um, but but it is very it's it's very generic advice in terms of um, uh, you know it's, it's like stay true to your religion, right? It's like it's like it's not specific to them being like a, a, like a ruler and a ruler's son or anything like that, or like it's not strategic advice like do this after me or like expand the empire this way or something like that is it's, it's not even about personal quality so much right like uh or any advice like that it's, it's very much like you know uh, uh follow the Quran, follow the follow the teaching of the, the example of the prophet saying stay uh, sincere to the religion like like things like that but again i hate myself for saying it right now because that doesn't convey how beautifully it's it says yeah, english translation is so beautiful and then whoever can read the Arabic should probably buy the original Arabic because I can imagine that's even more beautiful as far as, but yeah, so, so he was, he was, you know, uh, buried, he was in his fifties. He had lived like a particularly like very, very long life. And, uh, I think an interesting comment is made by, uh, uh Abdurrahman Bazam, who we mentioned at the beginning, who was, who was an important, uh, sort of person who's compiled the story of Salahuddin. He said he's he's a very unlikely person um, in Islamic history in many ways, in the sense that we mentioned as well, he didn't come from like a lineage of kings or a royal family. He was a Kurdish background person operating in places like, you know, Syria and Egypt. It was like his homeland, right? Uh, he wasn't somebody who kind of... Uh, conquered the way most conquests happened, which is like through a whole lot of battles and bloodshed and things like that. He didn't build an empire that way as empires are typically built. So in so many ways, his story is not supposed to work out. Like there's all of these disadvantages that he has, if you look at it, that so many others have advantages in those same respects. And yet he is the person who is destined to achieve what he achieved, right? SubhanAllah. And that's personal qualities and of course ultimately the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and you know it's it's not rocket science it's an important thing to keep in mind that when we read about the stories of Salahuddin and you know when we read about the stories of the Quran of the prophets for example those promises that are made to the Anbiya in the Quran or even to the Muslims uh, in general you know, people who submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if you do this, like the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will come and, you know, persevere. Like there, there's instructions given, but those promises weren't limited to the Anbiya or to the Sahaba. It's just the Quran is like eternal, right? For everyone after that. So you know whether your worldly success looks like success or not. But as long as you're sincere, you can kind of keep it going. It's a lot of the, that's the thing. She seems really like, uh, uh, unconcerned almost at times when you read his biography that, you know, if I pass away, okay, like, like it's, it's no big deal. It's not stressing him out. It's not stressing him out at any point. It, and that's, you need that mindset to be able to be as patient as you We talked so much about how patient he was, right? How patient he was. And if you're constantly stressing 
or if he was constantly stressing about, you know, the next move, like I better do it soon, or it's never going to happen, or, you know, like, like if it's all up to me, when you leave it all up to Allah, when you know that, and you hope that you might be a part of Allah's plan, then you continue to do the work diligently and, and beautifully, but the stress is not, because ultimately it's all up to Allah. Yeah. That's beautifully said. Yeah. Brother Hassan Malir, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I know we, we kept you for a long time. It was a roller coaster ride, but you yeah. stayed patient with us. I'm doing that. No, I appreciate the opportunity. I had to stay at least this patient after reading that incredible story. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for listening to the Ansari podcast. I'm your host, Mahmoud Al Ansari, and this is the Ansari podcast.